Hey there, and welcome to episode 47 of the Craftish Podcast. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio, offering hands-free inspiration while you're making whatever your next handmade thing is. And who does not love a good book? I know that I read whenever I can, but when I can't, I like to listen to books. And that, my friends, is where our sponsor, Penguin Random House Audio, comes in. And their website, tryaudiobooks.com, is perfect for us crafters. In fact, they have a playlist just for us. You can go to tryaudiobooks.com slash crafter, and you can see all kinds of curated titles for us. And they're, they're not craft books. They're just great listens while your hands are at work. And they're even offering a free download right now. So if you go to tryaudiobooks.com slash crafter, you can download a copy of Ivy and Inky the Butterfly by Johanna Bosford. So go there and check not only that book out, which you nab for free, but also all of their other great titles. This week on the show is founder of Handstand Kitchen, Yvette Garfield. Handstand Kitchen is a kid-focused cooking company that encourages delving into the different cultures of food as a child learns to make, eat, and enjoy those foods. I met Yvette on an airplane about a decade ago. She was on her way to Austin, where I live, to do a cooking class event for kids at the Whole Foods Culinary Center. I, after meeting her, immediately signed up my then seven-year-old son, Tristan, to take the class, and since then have been watching her business grow from just a one-woman operation to a full-fledged, thriving business now. During our conversation, Yvette and I talk about growing up in Southern California, her decision to leave her career as an attorney to start her own business, the challenges and triumphs of being a female entrepreneur, and why kids and food are passions of hers. Let's meet Yvette now. Yvette Garfield, thank you so much for being here on Craftish. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So you and I grew up about an hour away from each other in Southern California, and I don't no, I think maybe I'm a little bit older than you, but give or take, we grew up around the same time. And I was trying to remember if there were any sort of kid-focused cooking outlets when we were growing up and, and where we were growing up. And I don't remember them. I mean, of course, there's PBS and there was, you know, cooking with Julia and that kind of thing. But that wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have been interested in that, you know, as young kids or whatever. Do you, do you remember any influence from... From that I time? do, I do. It, it was definitely very different than than how it is today, and how it's really targeted to kids. But even in elementary school, we would take out a, a book from the library every Friday to read, and then return it Monday. Right. And I would definitely hit the kids' cooking section, which there was a small one, but it was usually like a a good housekeeping or a, a very branded uh, version of a kids' cookbook. And I think my parents were worried I was trying to get out of actually reading. But I was just fascinated that there were recipes, you know, really targeting kids um, and that it was it was sort of an adult focused part of the house. Like the kitchen was off limits. But these these books sort of gave you access or like a portal into that world, which was really exciting for me. What led you to be interested? Because you did, as you're saying, you you had to seek it out. Now you can flip on and there's, you know, these great kid kickoff, you know, shows. And of Mm -hmm. course, um, you've kind of pioneered the genre with Handstand Kitchen. So, but what, what sort of spawned your 
desire to know more about cooking? Yeah, I think it really from early on, like just a love for food and kind of just wanting to understand how dishes got to the table and, and where food comes from and, you know, different eating habits. As a child, I had high cholesterol. My father was a type 2 diabetic. Just, you know, food was such a representation and also such a grand gesture of, like, love that I, I don't know. Something about the, the combination was just really special to me. And, you know, I was always hungry as well. I loved to snack. That hasn't changed either. But, um, but I think something about that seemed to have, like, a magical or, like, a whimsical element that really just captivated my imagination from, from early on. So that was that was very exciting to me. Were family meals a big deal in your house, like sit-down family meals? Yeah, and we each, I'm an only child, and my parents and I each had different eating habits. My, my father was a pescatarian uh, back then. My mom ate everything. Now she's also pescatarian, and I was on my way to becoming um, a fish eater just as well. But, uh, but yeah, there were, it, was a, it was sort of a you know, ritual, like you sit down at dinner, TV may have been on in the background uh, on low, but there was always, you know, a sharing of the day and a discussion of the food as well. Um, and what was also very special, like every day, both in my lunch and in my father's lunch, there were there were notes on the napkin. So it was it was sort of a time to like connect back to family as well as to, to appreciate that the food, you know, was was brought to you with love as well. Was that your mom's doing? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Was and actually... Yeah, after my, my father passed nine years ago and after cleaning out um, everything in my, my parents' garage, we found a very large um, trash bag filled with <laughs> every single napkin Aww. my mother had written a note on, whether he used them or not. So we still, I think we could clone him because I think there's some DNA left on there from, from some of the food. But um, but yeah, to, to see that that was... Powerful. You know, very, that yeah, stuck with him. Special, a, a special time for him. I don't even know if he actually shared that with my mom. But just the fact that he kept every single one for years and years and years was was pretty pretty amazing to see. Did your mom come up with her own recipes, or did she was she a recipe follower, or or did she have some kind of cultural or family tie to the to the food that she cooked for the family? I don't think she was a strict recipe follower. Definitely, she, you know, what was passed on to her from, from her family being, you know, Ashkenazi, uh, Jewish in America, um, some of those cultural traditions were, were passed on. But I really, I think as I was growing up, it was about adapting to, you know, trying to be healthy and that, that sort of transition for what was healthy when I was a, a child before it was, you finish everything on your plate to, okay maybe less fat to now, you know, reducing the carbs. So her trying to adapt to what was the healthiest, best option for her family. Um, and also being, you know, a working mom, making it in a, in a quick, but meaningful way. So I think she was constantly adapting. So your mom was working and still took the time to not only look at your nutrition, um, but also write specialized special notes every day. Yes, absolutely. That's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So you have this love for for food and for recipes and for the culture around it. And then you choose to go to school, but major in psychology and history. Where was it? Where was the shift? Uh, I don't know if there was a shift, but I mean, I just tried to go with things that that interest me um, that I was 
you know, relatively good at. Um, but I, I think I just wanted to explore. I think history is fascinating. Psychology obviously is, you know, gateway to understanding people um, on a different level. And I don't, I just think I followed what, what kind of appealed to me in college. So, so you moved on and then you decided to go to law school. I did. What drove you, what, what drove you to seek out law at this point? At this point, were you working in the food industry at all? Were you, or supplementing? Were you still sort of following that passion? Um, you know, I did a lot of volunteer work in college and it sort of showed up. We would do, um, I was in charge of a nonprofit organization at UCLA and we could pick our projects. And so we worked with kids in group homes and we worked also at the Ronald McDonald house. And looking back on it, I was in charge of the programming and I, I, it just sort of seemed natural to have cooking programs which was so amazing for both organizations um, in working with different groups of kids. So, you know, at group homes, the kids were a little bit tougher, didn't really, you know, open up as easily. And cooking was the perfect activity where your focus is on something else, but you sort of soften and relax into it. And it was a way that the kids could sort of open up at the same time with also seeing, you know, that final result that they could share with each other. Um, it was, it was just a really awesome experience. And we had that same, uh, different result, but the same, same sort of thing at the Ronald McDonald house where people were going through, you know, either they, the children were very sick or the parents were, you know, caretakers and, and going through the most unimaginable times with the sick child and the activity of cooking. Again, it sort of directs your attention away from, you know, the pressures of, of discussing your situation, but you open up in ways, you know, more naturally. And that, that was very powerful for me to see. Um, but it, within college, no, I definitely, you know, focus on my education. I actually, um, did a semester in Washington, DC and interned at the white house. So I went a little bit of the political route as well, working at the department of justice later on. Um, so I kind of had a wide, wide range of experience. So, uh, but somehow that brought me to law school as well. Did you feel, this is kind of a sidebar question. Did you feel any connection to the work that Michelle Obama was doing while she was first lady with the incorporating sort of nutrition in the gardens? That seems like a cross section of, of your history. She's an attorney as well. Well, she's she's Wonder Woman and such an inspiration in every possible area. But I think, yeah, having that, you know, the Let's Move campaign as as her mission and just, you know, showing that uh, gardening and eating vegetables is cool and, and her awesome arm muscles and the strength of, of this woman, I think, is really, you know, great for for Americans to see, for children to see. Um, and yeah, that eating veggies can be not just good for you, but fun and exciting. And the fact that the White House is doing it, um, you know, I think really set the tone for that time. And they have a, I think the White House chef that worked with her was Sam Cass. um, And he did a lot of really cool things in the kids cooking world as well. So yeah, that was awesome to see and sort of reinforce that we were on the right track as well of getting kids, you know, the earlier you get kids involved in the kitchen, involved in recipes, it creates this sort of consciousness of like, okay, food isn't just this magical thing that appears at McDonald's, you know, it starts with one ingredient growing. And I think um, the Obamas really, especially Michelle Obama really brought light to that and empowered kids in a different way. 
So that was, yeah, that was amazing to see. Had you gone the political route, what, what would your focus have been? So my second summer of law school, I interned in D.C. at the Department of Justice in child exploitation and obscenity. So it was child trafficking and child pornography. So that was the summer I really decided um, that I wanted to advocate for kids, but I had already sort of put together the, the basic foundation of my company. And it really solidified that this that was not the way that I wanted to live the rest of my life. Life is hard enough. And to be on the front lines of that on, on a daily basis is absolutely amazing, but I didn't see that for myself in the long run. So, I mean, you could tell it, it took its toll on the attorneys and to, to commit yourself, commit your life like that is is heroic. And that was something I did could do for a short time, but wanted to figure out a different life plan for myself. So your passion for the welfare of children is really the bridge towards creating a business based on food for kids sounds like i would say that's correct yes at what point do you do you pivot it's one thing to go volunteer um you know at the y or even start cooking classes for kids, you know, at, at a local baking store or whatever. But what, what, was, what was the impetus of you shifting and, and going the entrepreneurial route of actually starting a business? You know, it was a little bit in the blood, I think, the whole nature versus nurture. And, you know, I grew up, my parents had a small business throughout Los Angeles. And, you know, I was working from since I could walk, I was straightening, you know, candy sections and pharmacies and, and my mom had a children's store. And I think I was always like privy to that conversation and being an only child and having one ear at the, you know, the kitchen table, listening about the businesses. I, I think it was, it was sort of a written out for me that that was, that was probably part of the plan. Um, and I think working for yourself, especially as, as a woman is, is super powerful. Like, you know, you put in the hours and I have a lot of friends at law firms or CPAs and, and that's fantastic. But I think for myself, I wanted to be able to like put in, you know, those insane hours, but for something that I was personally building and, you know, looking back, I, you know, it was probably a little bit of a, of, of being naive and thinking, I'll just give this a go and it not realizing quite how much work and how much, you know, building at every level is necessary. So, you know, it's a little not seeing exactly what's ahead of you and just sort of going for it, you know, being in your twenties is a lot different than, uh, your late thirties. So I think, you know, now I'm like, Holy moly, how did that, how did that all play out? But it just sort of did it just take one step and it led you to the next step. Um, and I think it just sort of grew on its own. So, and I was, I was smart enough to know if I didn't know what to do to ask someone, uh, who was a hell of a lot smarter than I did. And luckily I'm surrounded by a lot of smart people. So, um, that helped me kind of to get where I am. Did you ever get any formal training for to become a chef? No, no, I did uh, not. So tell the story, and I believe that I so you and I met on a plane over yes. a decade over a decade ago, and 
I think I probably asked you some of the questions that I'm asking now that I think of. I tend to, I tend to do that when I meet people. You're lucky my memory's not that good anymore. So. I, like, well, I should have, I should just be quiet then. Um, <laughs> what, what was the sort of t- talk about the inspiration behind the like actual like handstand kit- kitchen? I mean, you've, you've talked about what drove you and why you thought it was important, but you have a very clear vision for what it is. And maybe we should start there. Start with how you present your books and your kits and your products in a very specific way. So I would love if you would just sort of first share what that is and then also just sort of how you came um, to have such a clear vision. Yeah, I really think it was all about empowering kids. You know, we started with cookbooks and I think when I met you, we were just doing the international cookbooks then. And really the goal was, you know, to get kids interested in food, sort of take responsibility for understanding, you know, there's different health benefits um, of what they're eating, as well as to really create a global community of kids through learning about the world through food. Food is really, you know, the key to learning so many different parts of life, which I think is just fascinating. So yeah, it really is about empowering kids. And and people ask me all the time, why the handstand and one, I think doing a handstand keeps you young, which I try to do on a daily basis. And two, it's all about kids taking a stand, you know, with within the kitchen in a safe, fun, joyous way. So it's really carving out a space of an area that's traditionally sort of off limits and opening up to a real family experience. So that's really been my goal with the company. And I think, you know, especially with technology and everything being so fast paced, it's, it's a way for families to kind of stop for a second, kind of come back to, you know, a more traditional family activity that really has, you know, impact down the line. It's like games and, and toys are great, but this is a, this is a skill that will stay with you for the rest of your life. And also, you know, sort of open your eyes to, you know, you eat at least three times a day. Some of us a lot more like myself, but, you know, just opening your eyes to, to what food represents in your life and, and how you take ownership of that as well. Did you, you did a lot of traveling when you were younger that influenced sort of the way you present food as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I had a, a lot of opportunities to travel. My parents were we're very supportive of that in college with that community service um, road rat club. I went to to China um, in college and, and Europe and South America as well, um, and later on uh, Asia. And I, I think just the travel really opens your eyes. And, and there are certain things that connect us around the world, but food is really that, that thread for me that was so fascinating. Um, and I, I just wanted to be able to, to share that with with kids as well, that, that this, this element of, you know, every, every kid has a school lunch and you go into different communities and you see, you know, in Japan, it's, it's more of like a ritual with the, um, the cafeteria is like almost like a gourmet, uh, what we call like a gourmet restaurant where there's such a pride compared to, you know, my experience with tater tots and, and, uh, questionable hamburgers, which was the sort of the quicker American, um, cafeteria lunches so it's it's just an interesting thread that connects us all and to me that was you know solidified that I definitely wanted to pursue this part of um, of my career 
I heard an interview that you did. I think it was for a local TV show, and you were talking about how while you were in law school, you really needed a creative outlet, and and for you, that was cooking. What about cooking is sort of feeds the creative aspect of your soul? Yeah, that the law school was a tough three years. It was awesome, and I, I don't regret it in any means, but it, it takes, it's wearing, and it's you're constantly like, you know, head in the books and kind of second guessing, you know, did I do enough? Did I do this? And then you put that away, you walk into the kitchen and within an hour you have an immediate result, and you, you kind of just pause and you can focus on each step of what you're doing while you're doing it. And I just think there's something about that. That's, it's almost, it's almost meditative in a way where you're just really focused on that moment and what you're doing. Um, and you know, some people are big recipe followers. I'm a little more like, okay, let's look what's here. What have I actually done grocery shopping? Um, and sort of allows you to to be on the spot to make decisions that you'll see the the fruits of your labor in a very short amount of time. So that that was a, a great way for me to like pause during the more stressful times within law school. So I enjoy that a lot. What is your favorite type of food to make? Mm-hmm. A good omelet. You can eat it any time of day, and you can always make it a little bit different with whatever ingredients are on hand. So I think that's that's kind of a staple for me. How, if, how do you approach kids who are picky eaters asking for a friend? Yes. Uh, I'm I'm so glad you asked that. Uh, I think what we've noticed in in a bunch of our classes, um, we used to do a bit bit more like series of classes. So we'd see after like six or eight weeks, some of the pickier eaters, I would say two words, three words, consistency without pressure. So you consistently show different types of foods without the pressure of you must try this. It's just part of the norm. It's just part of what we eat. I think you don't need to be concerned if your kids are at least eating two or three types of fruits or vegetables, they're getting their nutrition in. Um, but you know, a picky eater, again, you're, you're showing the consistency of it's here. Our family eats vegetables and also being a little bit creative. I remember as a kid, you know, there was, there were vegetables, but there was a cheese dip or there were, there was a lot of fruit, but there was a, a chocolate dipping sauce. And you can of course make those a bit healthier, but, um, you know, having, having making, allowing kids to make the choices for themselves. Cause you don't want to force feed anyone. And the more you push it, the more there's pressure, uh, there's going to be a pull away. But I remember we had one kid, my gosh, she was, she was very young. Her mom was like, she's very advanced. This is typical LA, right? It was mm-hmm. for like five and up and the kid was three. Mom's like, she won't, she's very advanced. She won't bother anyone. I said, why don't you come to the first class? If she's not, if she's not disruptive and if she's getting something out of it, she's welcome, welcome to be part of it. Sure. The child was phobic, not just uneasy, but we're talking phobic of avocados. We were doing guacamole in the first class and we had to remove them from (laughs) from her side of the table. Just didn't want to be near it. So that's fine. I remember maybe three months later, the mom sent me an email, it must've been like five paragraphs long, thanking me how her child's favorite food was now guacamole. Really? But it was the, it Just was from removing, how, how did well, you break no, through that was, barrier? 
it was the it was the fact that we didn't shove it in her face. It was there. The other kids were still using it. We gave her the option at a later time if she wanted to make it. She didn't have to actually eat it. She wanted to make it and then share it with someone because that's part of the fun of cooking too, is that you can you know make things for other people. It's like a showing of love, which was you know later became exciting to her. And then when she would see other people enjoying it she suddenly thought, well, you know, maybe this tastes good. Maybe eventually, I, I, you know, she'll she'll acclimate to that. So it was the, the consistency, the repetition without the, you must eat this. And I've seen my friends with, you know, a lot of my friends have three, four-year-olds and they all have different tactics. So again, you know your child best, but I think the parents feel so much pressure that the kids should, you know, be eating every single fruit and vegetable in the, in the market. Um, but it doesn't have to be that. I think there could be a gradual... You know, if a picky eater, that's fine. As long as you're you're on a path, you're seeing that this is part of like the family uh, fabric. We eat vegetables, we have a salad with dinner, and you know, I think giving choices again with the dip or here's here's three vegetables, pick one to try. So that those are my those are my tips. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that'll work. You can you can check for it with your friend and let me know how it's going. Also, asking for a friend, you make house calls. I do not, but um, I have a dear friend in Florida who works with kids who have a little bit more severe eating issues where the pickiness actually becomes clinical. And it's very rare, but, you know, there it, there are some kids who just, she had one kid, I think, who only ate veggie straws. And so that that's something where, yes, you can definitely get help. But I think for most kids, it's more of a phase. It's more of a you know, you hear at school the ew factor, and that was one that was one rule we made. There's no ew because what you like, I may not like, and vice versa. So we respect everybody's food choices, um, and that that was part of it as well. So it's like okay, if you don't have to put it on your plate, but if the person next to you is eating it, you know, you respect that as well. I feel like there's also a lot more texture and sensory issues now with kids than there ever was when we yeah. were growing up, which adds another layer. For better or for worse, you know, how we parent now could have a lot to do with it. And, and who knows? And it could be environmental. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I can't tell you. But for better or worse, that adds – it definitely adds a different layer to the challenges of cooking healthy meals for kids now. I'm sure. And I know we've worked with a lot of kids on the spectrum or with different challenges. And and texture is, is a huge challenge. So – Again, you know your child best. If something's not working, take it off the menu for a little bit and, and figure out what's really going to, to be the best for your family. And and I think relieving some of the pressure, I think parents are under such pressure to be perfect and there's no such thing. And looking to like your family and what works and acknowledging that parenting is very challenging. And if, you know, if broccoli is not on the menu this year, that's okay. We'll, we'll circle back to it, but we'll try another vegetable and we'll, we'll go for it. So I think parents just, you know, giving themselves a little bit of slack and also getting kids as part of the cooking process early as well. So if you have a picky eater, let them help you make dinner. There's a pride with putting your hands on the process. And then once you sit down, it's like you can discuss, well, you know, Betty made this recipe. Betty put this ingredient here. What do you think of that? And I think that that makes it more of a family experience rather than like, you know, a line cook where are you eating this or are you not? So I think really taking that time to um, 
work with the kid or take the kid to a farmer's market where they're choosing an ingredient that's appealing to them and they're having that experience. And again, I know families are on tight schedules, but that might be one way to kind of have an activity to combat that, that weekly stress. So there's, there's lots of tips. And if anyone wants to reach out to me after, um, they're welcome to do that. But I think I have a feeling you're a very good parent as well. And your friends are, and you know, it's just, it's figuring out what, what's working at that moment. Well, my little guy that took your class was the yeah. the pickiest ever. He is now almost 17. Um, oh, my God. That makes me feel very old. <laughs> um, and he, he's, he's definitely worked on it. But I, th- I think for him, there's some texture stuff, too. But he's definitely worked on it. We, his, his younger sister, though, is just as bad, if not worse. And he just looks at me sometimes at the dinner table and just says, oh, Mom, I'm so sorry. Like, <laughs> he that it's I mean, really that, funny. that's a little bit of redemption, but also you see, he's still a teenager and he's, he's grown out of that sort of phase. So, you know, yeah, I, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and here's the thing, you know, it's like at the end of the day, my, my, it's funny back even in the, you know, eighties when my little brother was little and he would only eat like, who knows? It was like salami and saltines, like the worst thing ever. <laughs> it was the 80s. Um, you know, I, even then the doctors were like, monitor what he eats in a week and not in a day. And I still think, I mean, there's a lot of things from then that I'm like, oh, I don't think, but that's still, I think, solid advice. You know, it's like, call Absolutely. it a win. If you get a balanced meal over the course of the week, call it a win, at least when they're little, little, you know? Absolutely. How, yeah. how will, um, what, what's the handstand kid method for going into the holidays? What kind of fun things do you recommend? Um, or, or do you as a company promote or recipes yeah. that people can look forward to? We're doing a lot of like pop-up shops. We did one at, um, Williams Sonoma last week with cookie decorating. Uh, you know, I think really trying to get a family tradition going that puts the electronics down and just, we're just on such crazy schedules uh, to just take a moment to do something fun with the family, like whatever, you know, if you're a family that loves making cookies for the neighbors, you know, plan out a day, you know, put some time aside and really just spend that time together. And I think it's an inexpensive um, and it's a, a really memorable experience. And people tend to really remember their their first experiences cooking as a family. Um, I, whenever I'm, I'm kind of doing these events, people will come to me, oh, I remember my first cookbook or oh, I remember, you know, making this with the family. There's something very special about it. And so I think taking the time to make sure that those opportunities um, are sort of taken each holiday season, because, you know, we're all shopping and going to parties and the gifts and all that. But it's really about, you know, pausing from those crazy work schedules and, and getting back to some some basic fun things. So. Um, and I think it's a good way to, to give, to make gifts as well, you know, instead of, you know, everybody loves a, a scarf, but how many can you get? So, you know, hey now, I, well, a handmade (laughs) scarf is very different than, uh, than one from the store. So yes, scarves are lovely. I take that back. I had to put that, but handmade, that's a craft. This is my house, you bet. Yes, yes. I've overstepped. Oh my goodness. Handmade is different. That comes back to the crafts. You could, and you could do maybe a scarf cake. Wouldn't that be lovely? Good save. Good save. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, but yeah, I think again, getting back to like giving something that's done with more thought, uh, you know, taking that craftsmanship, 
Um, and again, the events that we've done recently, what I've noticed is a lot of adults will stop and decorate cookies. We had one guy that was there Sunday, 20 minutes, he was decorating one cookie. And I think it was just such a relief to him to like not be on the go and to just be focused just and sort of relaxed yeah, to, slow to slow down. down. And, and it was really, it was a kid's event, but we had so many adults that just really wanted to do it. And I thought that was very interesting because, you know, we are a kids focused company, but like some of our silicone molds that we have that we're selling unicorn shaped and, and now outer space and mermaid, we're, we're hearing back from stores and from customers that they're not just doing it to bake cupcakes. They're doing bath bombs. They're doing soaps. They're doing activities that really just, again, you get that time out you, and it's, you, you make something that's just kind of awesome. And I think there's something about that, that we're lacking overall as a culture right now. And we're sort of giving a nod back to that, which I think is absolutely fantastic. So, um, and of course making, making scarves is a wonderful thing to do as well. It's too little, too late. I know. (laughs) What, what have you learned about being an entrepreneur and maybe, maybe a female entrepreneur or maybe just entrepreneur over the past decade that your business has been around? Oh, how much time do you have? I mean, we've got time. Uh, <laughs> it is awesome and challenging. It is it is a constant proving of self. Mm. Being a young woman, the questions I've been asked, especially by men, whether I have a website, whether I do this as a hobby, whether I expect to make money, like things I just don't think a male counterpart would experience. Um, do you think that that has anything to do much like with what I do with the vehicle being considered quote unquote women's work. I don't because like I go to the toy shows and it's very much an old, old boys club, like a hundred percent, like mm. the toy world. So they, they can appreciate if it's like a kid's toy, but I think it, maybe a little bit, but I think for the most part, it really is just female ownership. So it's just you having a business. It's not that it's a cooking based business. Right. Interesting. Right. And I I was in my twenties when I started it and had a youthful glow back then. Um, so I think it was, Oh, a young woman, you know, what the hell does she think she's doing? So, and again, that's good motivation to kind of prove And how do you break past those barriers? You just keep going. You just keep going and you surround yourself with really great people. And when people around you aren't good, you move forward. So, and, and it's hard to do that. It's hard. I think as women, we're so taught to, to people please and to, you know, kindness first. Well, yes, absolutely. I'm a big proponent of kindness, but when things aren't working, like you do have to have difficult conversations. You do have to protect the sanctity of the business over everything else. So, uh, but I do, I, do, I think building relationships with people who um, are awesome. And I've met so many amazing people and, you know, in the toy world and the houseware world and reps. And it's, it's really keeping those people who believe in you and your vision close by and making sure that you have healthy enough relationships where they tell you what's working and what's not. Um, cause I, I've seen people who are surrounded by sort of the yesers and then you kind of see, you know, products come to market that, that should have had a little bit healthier, um, feedback before they launched. So, but yeah, I think just, just to keep going amidst, you know, sort of the day-to-day challenges and keeping things in check. Has asking 
for help, having the ability to ask for help, something inherent for you. Or- <laughs> Uh, so you've been to my therapy sessions? Just kidding. Um, no, I think when you're a business owner, you know, I worked, I went to law school. Like, no, I, I think I can uh, do everything until you start to implode a little bit. So yeah. especially we did, we did a promotion on the Today Show um, for holiday 2016. And we broke some records with the amount of orders. And I thought between myself and my other warehouse in Long Beach, California, that we would have no problem fulfilling those orders. And I I took more orders than we were even supposed to. And that that was that was a, a realization moment that we needed a little bit more infrastructure to like keep things moving. So yeah, and, that, and that's the lesson where you wanna you wanna be in a position Meaning that to, you need financial backing to make it happen. No, manpower and that the owner of the company during holiday time should not be in a warehouse packing boxes that there should be more people on staff to do um to do that sort of work i thought okay i can you know work late at night and finish you know like santa santa works late at night and and finishes packing packing the items and and that was not the best use of my time when when business was growing that that rapidly so yeah just working out those growing pains and figuring out how to delegate and what to delegate so that and that was a, a moment where I learned to ask for more help. So now I try to do that before we get to to crisis mode and to to put the right people in the right jobs. Do you think that that's at all gender specific? That the feeling that we as business owners and women should be in the trenches at all times for it to be for us to be valued and valuable and for us not to seem like we feel like we're better than anybody else doing the other work? Yeah, I think, I think it's a complicated answer, but I, I definitely think as uh, more women become in these positions, it'll, it'll hopefully neutralize, but I think it's still a little bit of an outlier. You know, I go to a lot of these shows and, and it is still it's if it is a female owned company, it's like, oh, it was their father's business before. Or I get asked that a lot. Oh, you know, did, did your father give you the business? <laughs> it's like, no, I, I don't know if it's a compliment or, or a, a slant. But, you know, how, how long I got asked this at the last show, like three or four times. How long did your parents or your family own the company before you stepped in? I was mm. like, yeah, which I guess is a compliment to me. And we seem like an established com- company, but. Um, no, I do think the female tendency is, you know, it's, it's cliche, but to like, you know, bring home the bacon and then fry it in the, in the pan. It's, it's, there's different expectations on women. And I see, especially some of my friends, um, who are, uh, running companies and have small children, this, the, just everything still falls on them. And whether it's by choice or by expectation, I think that's a complicated question that will, you know, work itself out with time. So it's it's the pendulum swing. It's great women get to be in this position and now sort of figure out how that changes the family structure and the family balance. It's complicated questions, but I think, you know, unfortunately it'll take take some time to to figure out where the healthiest balance of all that is. What do you think or what would you like kids 
to take away from your business, from their experience with any of your products or your classes mm. or workshops or, or whatever? That's a great question. I, I think to just really find the joy in the use of it, um, of the experience of it, of having these utensils and recipes that are really made for them to have an experience that they can share with families, with friends, and to have access to the kitchen in an appropriate way that brings them gratification. Um, a real exploration into an area that wasn't necessarily carved out for them, but that they're granted access to and, and really, you know, creates an experience and, and some skills that can that can take them on a journey the rest of their lives. Well, Yvette, it has been a joy to talk to you, friend. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I hope it's not another 10 years before we talk again. <laughs> Definitely not. For more information on Yvette Garfield in Handstand Kitchen, go to her show notes page at vickihowell.com slash craftish. All right, now it is time for our segment that is in partnership with Penguin Random House Audio, what I'm crafting-ish to. So this is where I just tell you what I'm crafting, working, driving, living to, sort of the soundtrack, the audio soundtrack to this week for me. So on TV, the second season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is out on Amazon Prime and I am devouring it. I just loved the first season and the second season does not disappoint as a follow-up. So if you are so inclined, check that out on Amazon. Music right now, I am listening to um, the band She and Him, which is uh, Zoe Deschanel's band with M. Ward, they have an album called Christmas Party, and they were just in Austin at ACL for a show for that album, and I unfortunately missed it, so instead I am listening to the album itself. All right, let's talk audiobooks. So I finished You're a Badass Every Day by Jen Sincero. And, you know, like I mentioned on the last episode, it's only an hour and a half. And it's one of those that I will be listening to, you know, again and, and possibly again after that because it is filled with, you know, just general inspiration and prompts and great reminders for just moving forward and thriving. And, you know, I love that. What I just downloaded, though, and cannot wait to dive into over the next few days is Betty White's book, If You Ask Me, and of course you won't. I am, uh, you know, just a huge Betty White fan, but what this book, what the publishers say about this book is that it is her delivering a hilarious, slightly profound take on love, life, celebrity, and everything in between, and it talks about, you know, she talks about her crushes and her hair color, which she says she has no idea what it is and never intend to, which is just a girl after my own heart. I feel the same. Um, And, you know, just sort of like her life and career over these past, she's in her 90s now, right? So she has also new material in it that really covers just the past 15 years. So I'm just really looking forward to it. I'm a big proponent of absorbing the essence of other strong, creative, independent women, of which Betty White is, you know, at the highest of the queen levels and uh, you know of course the other big draw in listening to the book versus reading it is that she betty narrates it herself so you get to have betty in your ear for however many hours it takes her to read it and that is uh if that's wrong i don't want to be right frankly 
To listen to Jen Sincero's You Are a Badass Every Day and Betty White's If You Ask Me, go to tryaudiobooks.com or wherever you go to download your audiobooks. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend or post a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us be seen and then heard, um, which helps us to be able to make more episodes. Craftish is a Camp Bell production. It's produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by Explosions in the Sky. If you are looking for a gift for that yarn crafter in your life, please go check out Yarnier.com. The December Yarnier subscription box is now available. So you can go to Yarnier.com and subscribe, give a gift, watch the unboxing, all of the things, and we will ship in time for Christmas. Be sure to follow me also on Instagram and Facebook. Both are just at Vicki Howell. I spell my name B-I-C-K-I-E. Um, so at Vicki Howell. And then you can also, if you are a crafter, you might be interested in watching me weekly. I am there live almost every Monday on Facebook for three plus years running for my series Ask Me Monday. So you can find that at noon central on most Mondays on Facebook. All right, so check your feed next Thursday for our next episode of the Crafters Podcast. My guest next week will be author of Weaving Within Reach, designer Ann Wheel. Until then, please take a little bit of time to be creative, fill that creative well, breathe in, craft out.